Romans chapter 9, verse 1. Paul writes, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is overall God, blessed forever. Skip ahead to chapter 10, verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Skip ahead to chapter 11. Verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Father, we pray for their salvation this morning. And we ask that you would, this week and next, clarify for us what it is you're doing and why it's so important that we understand it. We need your Holy Spirit to teach us and to motivate and move us, Father. So I ask for that, the work of your Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you can go ahead and put it on your calendars. March 12th through 23rd, or 23, 12th through 23, 2018, the next Bridge to Israel tour. We'll start taking sign-ups very soon. I know we're just back, but I wanted to let you all know that. We have the dates locked in. We have Roni back in two years to join us and lead us. In fact, pray about this. I'm trying to work on getting Roni Winters out here to speak to us uh, sometime, which you, you would love. You can say Roni, and he'd say yes. And it'd be marvelous to have him here so you can get a sense of who who this guy is who's been traveling with us the last couple of times we've been in Israel. Wonderful man. Um, Good friend. But we're going. March 12th through 23rd, 2018. Should we all still be here? Should these things not rise? Okay? So plan on that. Love to take as many of you as possible. Now I know and I hear the question from time to time, Rick, why do you keep traveling to Israel? This last trip was the fifth time we've taken a group from the church. We've gone over and over. We continue to go back. And now it's just a thing. Every two years, it is a thing. This is what we do. This is part of the, of the fabric of what we're doing as a fellowship. Why is it so important? Well, let me give you three quick reasons before we get on into our study. Number one, we go for the Word. We go to Israel for the Word. Because Israel, the land, opens up the Word of God three-dimensionally like nothing you will experience in your life. Those of you who have been understand exactly what I'm talking about. And if you haven't, if you want to fully understand and, and get into and see and visualize and experience the Word of God beyond anything you've ever imagined, go to Israel. I'm telling you two years in advance, so you can put a little jar on your counter and just start putting your change in it. Save up, pray, ask the Lord to provide in a way that perhaps you can't imagine for you to join us in the land. We go for the Word. Israel is sometimes called the fifth gospel. 
And it truly is like reading yet another gospel, another perspective. The four gospels, you know, are each one four different perspectives of the same life of Jesus. From four different men who witnessed, who watched, and who talked to witnesses of the life of Christ. And so we get these four angles that are marvelous. The land of Israel is angle number five. You need to do it, if you possibly can. So we go for the Word. But we also go for the witness. And that is that I believe God wants His people to come to the land. Think about it. You you buy a house or you move into a new place and you decorate it and you put all your things there. What do you want to do? Have people over. Hey, come celebrate our home with us. Come enjoy a meal here. We want to share a little bit of ourselves with you. Come see where we are, where we live, what we're doing. We go as a witness. I believe God feels that way about the land. I I truly do. That He wants people to come see His house. Wants people to come walk through the land that He has chosen. And get that, 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 36. He says, Jerusalem is the city where I have chosen for Myself to put My name. He didn't say that about any other place on earth. Psalm 132.13 For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. This is My resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it, says the Lord. Now when God says this is My resting place forever, I don't see an end to that. I don't see a conclusion there. Forever in the Hebrew means... (laughs) Forever. Right, good. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 5. I have set Jerusalem at the center of the nations with lands around her. As far as God is concerned, Israel is the center of the earth with Jerusalem in the center of Israel and the Temple Mount in the center of Jerusalem. And Zechariah chapter 2 verse 8 says, He who touches Jerusalem touches the apple of his eye. So is there any question about how God feels about the land of Israel and the city of Jerusalem, Zion? We go for the Word. We go as witnesses of God's house. And finally, and I think incredibly importantly, we go as watchmen. We go as watchmen. Jeremiah 31 verse 6 says, There will be a day when watchmen on the walls or in the, on the hills of Ephraim call out, Arise, let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Shout among the chief of the nations, Proclaim and give praise and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. And what's interesting is the way that's written, the prophet seems to be speaking to people who perhaps... Watchmen who may be are not Jewish. Because of the way he says, sing aloud with gladness for Jacob. Bridge Fellowship, sing for Jacob. Oh Lord, Bridge Fellowship, pray, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Do you pray for the salvation of Israel? Do you pray for God's people, the Jewish people, to find, to be found by their Messiah? Because, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but He is their Messiah. Isaiah said in Isaiah 62 verse 1, For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not keep quiet until her righteousness goes forth like brightness and her salvation like a torch that is burning. If you're going to open your mouth for any people group on the earth, open your mouth for the Jewish people. Don't remain silent where Zion is concerned. 
I honestly believe that this is part of the calling of a Christ-centered life. You want to be more Christ-centered? Consider the Jew. You want to love Jesus even more? Love the people He loves. And take the time necessary to understand what this is really all about. Now, someone might say, I get that you go for the Word, that makes sense. And I get that you go as witnesses of of what God has done, and of God's house, and of God's history. I understand all that. But watchmen, come on, Rick. How many people did you take on your last trip, 29? Really? You think 29 people going into a land of 12 million is going to make any difference? You think you're really going to have any impact? Well, we've been five times. I don't care if you've gone five times or 500 times. You're still just a tiny little group of people jumping on a tour bus, driving around the land. What difference can you make? We stood out. Some of us sat on a wooden patio near the overlook of the famous caves where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. The place is called Qumran. We were just there, what, a couple of weeks ago. And we sat with Roni. And Roni began to speak to us and share with us archaeological explanations of the sect that had lived there, along believed to be the Essenes. Probably not. As a matter of fact, there's far more evidence that the people living there were, in fact, Sadducees. That perhaps there was a connection between them and John the Baptist himself. But regardless of that, as we stood out there listening to Roni share and talk, and it was, it was a warm end to the day. We had been down in the Dead Sea region of, of Israel for the whole day. And it was warm outside, and thankfully there was a little shade, and we were tired, and we're drinking our bottled water, and, and Roni's explaining on, and then all of a sudden, he opened up to the group in a way I hadn't heard him open up to a group. In the last decade, and he began to share this, he said he has seen a centuries-old gulf of mistrust, suspicion, and even hostility between Jews and Christians begin to close. As a tour guide himself, he's watched these groups coming into the land. He's been leading for 30 years. And he said it's unmistakable in the last 10 years... As an Israeli and a Jew himself, he is seeing Christians coming into the land because they really care about the people of Israel. Watchmen. Watchmen on the hills of Ephraim. Watchmen praying for the people of Israel. Watchmen who go to the land, and yes, it makes a difference. And we run into more and more people when we're there. More and more Jews who are so thankful that we're coming and recognize as Christians, as followers of Yeshua... That we love them, that we care about them, that they were not, we're not there on a crusade against them. And what a lot of Christians don't understand is the history between Christians and Jews has not been good. Oh, not all Christians, but tragically, many in the church across the ages had very little good to say about Israel. And I think missed our part in bringing the word of salvation back to the people of God. I've been thinking about this, we've been talking about this for a dozen years. You all know that. It becomes more and more confirmed in my heart and in my mind. So this morning what I want to do is I want to talk about salvation. Jim's communion meditation is of the Spirit of God. You need to understand that because everything he shared about seeking the lost and searching for the lost finds its roots right here. Because as is our attitude toward Israel, so should be our attitude toward anyone who is lost toward anyone who is not right now in the arms of our loving Savior. 
I want you to think through this with me. I want to talk about having the right heart. I'm dividing this teaching into at least two messages, at least this Sunday and next Sunday. And if you really want the full picture, I invite you to come this Wednesday night and the following. Because across these four meetings together, we're going to cover Romans 9, 10, and 11. In depth, we're going to seek to fully understand what Paul is saying here about Israel and God's plan for His people. But this morning, let's just think about having the right heart. Because it matters. It makes a difference. I have found that churches that are passionately in love with Jesus, churches that are filled with the Spirit, churches that are biblically sound, are churches that love Israel. Why is that? Isn't that interesting? I've also found that those who are dead, dry, and unconcerned tend to not have a whole lot of good things to say about Israel. So there is something here. Let's talk about having the right heart. And it begins, as Jim shared, it begins with broken hearts. Broken hearts. Look back at verse 38 of chapter 8. Paul has just finished this glorious section of salvation and he ends it by saying, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And if you skip to chapter 12, verse 1, listen to the flow. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual form of worship. It flows beautifully. You almost don't need 9, 10, and 11. Just go right on to chapter 12. And many churches do. And many Christians do because chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11, it's too confusing. It's too bizarre. It doesn't make sense. Understand this. With the promise of no separation hanging in the air the Apostle Paul suddenly hangs his head. And he says in chapter 9, verse 1, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. What a left turn. We've just been singing the glories of no separation and suddenly Paul's heart is broken. And he starts to talk about a people of separation. It's a shocking turn here. It should cause us to go, whoa, Paul. What, your heart broken all of a sudden? And I think Paul would say, don't believe me, just ask the Spirit. He says, the Spirit is my witness. This is as strong a swearing as you possibly can have as a follower. I'm telling you, I swear by the Spirit of God. That what's going on in my heart right now is not just the joy of our non-separation, it is the sorrow of the separation of my people, Paul says. And we need to understand that. We need to be a people who, though we have the joy of our salvation, live with some degree of broken hearts. A broken heartedness. Because while we are joyful, we must never forget the sorrow of separation. And it's too easy to do. Hold on Israel for a moment. Think about this, that there are not only Jews, but there are Gentiles. There are friends, there are family, there are people you know, there are people close to you who right now are lost. I don't like thinking about that, Rick. I know, but we have to. 
We must think about it. I'd rather put that out of my life, out of my heart. You can't. Not if you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. You see, Paul just said back in chapter 8 that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, verse 17, if indeed we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. And so as Christ suffers for the lostness of this world, so do we. We must. Recognizing people you know and love who right now, today, this morning, are separated from Jesus should break our hearts. Verse 3. Paul goes so far as to say, For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Who do you feel that way about? Who do you look at in your life and think, if I could go to hell for them, I would. If my being condemned would save them, then I would be condemned. Now, unfortunately, some people take that too far. Some people say, well, if my father can't be saved, or my sister can't be saved, or my son can't be saved, I don't want to be saved either. That's what Darwin did. Few people know. Darwin broke with the Lord, being an altar boy when he was a kid, broke with the Lord because his father and his brother were atheists and he couldn't handle the concept that they would go to hell. Charles Darwin. Paul here says he would curse and separate himself from Christ if he thought it would save his people. It couldn't. Your condemnation will never bring salvation to another. Only the condemnation of Christ could do that. Not yours. Paul is not unlike Moses and what he said about the people of Israel. Exodus 32, verse 31. Alas, this people has committed a great sin, Moses said. And they've made a god of gold for themselves. Talking about the golden idol, the golden calf. But now, he says, if you will forgive their sin, if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Moses says, if you're not going to save my people, I don't want to be saved. You feel that way about someone? You know someone you love that much that you're right on that edge of, if they're not going to be saved, I don't know that I want to be saved. And again, there are those who reject Jesus because they can't stand the idea of family or friends being separated for all eternity. And that, my friends, is what I've called the divine tension. The divine tension of the Christian life is knowing the joy of of your salvation and the sorrow of others' lostness. That we walk with both. We must or we're not followers of Jesus. Of people who are always joyful because we know we are saved. There is no separation. But always with us that sorrow. That there is separation for people who have not received Jesus. And I encourage you all this morning, we need to feel the heartache. We need to know the sorrow and not shun it and not run away from it and not try to ignore it. If you separate yourself, think about this, if you separate yourself either from the person who's lost or from the Lord, you're going to cut yourself off from being a light in their darkness. How else are they going to hear about Jesus? Who else is going to tell them if not you? Well, I pray that someone will. Pray that it's you. Ask God for the words, for the opportunity, for the strength, for the wisdom, for the compassion 
to break through the uncomfortable moment and talk to lost friends and family about Jesus. Now back to Paul. Can you imagine how painful his ministry was? We've got to think about it for a minute. Who chased him down? Who attacked him? Who brutalized him more than anybody else? The Jews. His people. His people. These are the ones with whom he had shared his entire life in terms of tradition and culture and faith. All the way up to the meeting with Jesus on the Damascus Road, Paul was a Jew among Jews, loved the Jewish people, stood for the Jewish people, was about the Jewish people. And yet when he begins his missionary journeys, he's rejected by the Jewish people. And attacked. And pursued. And you know that Paul felt this and agonized over it. What did it cause him to do? It caused him to love his people even more. It caused him to pray more fervently. To live out his faith more boldly. He just kept going into the synagogues. And they'd kick him out and he would go to the Gentiles. And then he would go to a new city. And into the synagogue he would go. And they'd kick him out and he would go to the Gentiles. And then on to the next city and the next synagogue. Because Paul loved his people and understood the truth. Now, Romans 9, 10, and 11 sets up kind of a conundrum for us. Because, think about this theologically for a moment, if God's own people, Israel, are separated from Him, what does that do to the doctrine that Paul just declared in chapter 8? I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Alfred, the Bible commentator, said... A question naturally arises, accompanied with a painful difficulty respecting the exclusion of that people as a people to whom God's promises were originally made. With this national rejection of Israel, the Apostle now deals. And it's something that every Christian should understand. The rejection of Israel, and how does this work, how does it fit in the plan of God? Romans 9, 10, and 11 is absolutely essential teaching in the entire letter to the Romans and in the entire New Testament. It's critical, it's vital, and we should know it. And that's why, again, I invite you, and and no pressure, no guilt tripping, but I invite you to join us today, which you've done well, way to go, Wednesday next Sunday, and the following Wednesday. Four sessions in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Because if you've never studied this in depth and sought to understand it, you need to know. It's here for a reason. Leave this section out. Skip from chapter 8 to chapter 12, and God may seem a capricious, arbitrary, untrustworthy God. Well, I tried it with Israel. Made all kinds of promises. They blew it. They're out. I'll just move on to the next group. But, Israel... And get this down. If you get nothing else this morning, get this. Israel is a picture of the faithfulness of God. He is not capricious. He is not fickle or flighty or erratic. He is faithful. Isaiah 25 verse 1, O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will give thanks to Your name. For You have worked wonders, plans formed long ago with perfect faithfulness. That is our God. It's His character. It's His very nature. Hey, 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, He remains faithful. Why? 
Because he can't deny himself. He can't deny this is who he is. He is faithful. Now listen to the faithful God as his heart breaks over Israel. Matthew 23, 37. Jerusalem! Jerusalem! Who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, Jesus said, from now on you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because Israel rejected their own Messiah, their own Messiah, Yeshua says, you're not going to see me again until I return. But note this, when he returns, guess what Israel is going to be saying? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We'll talk about that as we go. But Romans 9-11 through is all about the faithfulness of God. And as His heart was and is, I believe, broken for Israel, so may ours be. Now, God is faithful. But what does Israel really have to do with me personally? And that's where Paul begins. He starts to unveil, to unravel here, some amazing gifts. And this is where we need not only broken hearts, but secondly, we need Berean hearts. We need Berean hearts. Acts 17.11, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, listen, examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Paul comes preaching the truth of Messiah. And the Jews in the synagogue of Berea were like... Okay, we hear what you're saying. We gotta, we gotta compare this with scripture. We gotta see how what you're teaching aligns with the word of God. These noble-minded Bereans. I wish more Christians were like that, to be honest. I believe you and this fellowship are, and I don't say that to tout this fellowship, but I know that the vast majority of, of you are here because you search the scriptures. Because you want to know what the word of God teaches rather than some idiot. Berean hearts so let's examine this biblically and and critically setting aside all the other gifts of Israel and they are plenty and we could go down the list cultural gifts that we receive from Israel I was talking with my sons last night about some of the greatest movies ever made by one Steven Spielberg a Jew and people go oh the Jews are all over the entertainment industry is that a problem? Has it hurt our entertainment to have Jews involved? Not in the least. I love Sammy Davis Jr. (laughs) How about artistically? Some of the most amazing artistic work has come out of Israel. Educationally, what they have understood and uncovered and taught the world. Agriculturally. The entire world is learning from tiny Israel. (laughs) Did I tell you last week what they did? It's marvelous. They had orange groves all around the Galilee. In fact, two years ago when we were there, orange groves everywhere. Problem was that their orange exports were so massive and so plenteous and so good, they were completely dwarfing the orange product in the European Union. So the European Union put a huge tax on the oranges. 
So Israel said, okay, well, that's not going to work for us because not only are they agriculturally minded, they're also quite financially minded. And you know what they did? You on the, on the tour remember this. Roni was telling us they chopped down all of the orange trees in the Galilee. Cut them in half. And then they took little mango saplings and they grafted them into these trees and created an entirely new orangish mango. And now around the Galilee, two years later, there are mango trees as far as the eye can see. Remarkable. They just grafted them in. And now you got mangoes. You don't want our oranges? We'll make mangoes. This is what Israel does. It's how they think. Financially, medically, technologically, you don't pick up a device today that Israel hasn't had an influence on in one way or another. It's incredible. But those aren't the gifts that Paul talks about here. Listen to the spiritual blessings. Verse 4. He says, my heart breaks. I wish that I was cut off from my brethren who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. The adoption of sons, that's the huiothesia that we've talked about several times in recent months. The huiothesia. Our adoption. Five times it's mentioned in the Scriptures. Four times it's talking about those who are born again, who are children of God now, who are awaiting our adoption as sons. Our inheritance, our redemption, when Christ calls us home, when we return with Him, and the world that's groaning right now will recognize, will see the revelation of the sons of God, the Huiothesia. But here, Paul says, wait a minute though, understand, it was first theirs. The adoption as sons first belonged to Israel. Yes, it's the promise in Christ ready to be revealed of the finalization of our adoption, our redemption. And I believe in that and rejoice in it. Hey, I am born again. I am a child of God. No longer a slave to fear. But when Jesus returns and us with Him, we will be seen as His sons with all the rights and privileges thereof. And by the way, someone might say, well, that's just pure sexism. Sons. You know what? It's the opposite of sexism. It is actually positional sonship, which is perfect equality. Because in Christ, ladies, you can be what you could not be outside of Christ an heir. Now, again, putting on your, your thinking kippa, your little Jewish thinking cap, a son in Jewish thought was, you know, firstborn son was the heir of all things. And it was his responsibility to take to take care of the family, which included all the daughters. They were looked after, they were cared for, they were not cut out. But the son, <laughs> he had the responsibility. He was the heir. And now in Christ Jesus, ladies, you are sons. You will be so right now you're children. So you don't have to wear the son thing just yet. But you're going to return with Him and be revealed as sons. Because there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free man, male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. The Huiothesia. But that adoption was first offered to Israel. And listen, it was never revoked. He never took it away. God never said, well, I was going to adopt you, but I'm done. No longer is that adoption available. No, in fact, Romans 11.26 tells us the gifts and the calling of God are what? 
irrevocable. When God calls, it doesn't get revoked. He doesn't turn back on His Word. Remember, God is faithful. And so it's irrevocable. Well, how do you know? I know this because adoption is never because of the adoptee. When we adopted our children, and they are wonderful. I absolutely adore Anna Marie, Naomi, and David. You need to know that. I think that's obvious. I adore them as much as my three biological kids. And they tick me off as much as my three biological Because they're all my children. And that's not a soap opera. They really are all my kids. But we didn't decide on them because they, they fit certain criteria. Because they did certain things that caught our attention all the way over there in Ghana. Hey, have you heard about this Anna Marie girl? Man, we got to get her home. Because she's amazing. In fact, <laughs> Kathy Pittis went over to Ghana. They were in the process of, of adopting. And she met Anna Marie and Naomi before we did. Before David was even born. And she came back and she said, Anna Marie. She said, Naomi's just a joy. She's just happy and you know, runs around all over the place sticking her tongue out at people. That's just Naomi. Nothing's changed. Anna Marie, however, is prayerful. She's quiet. She's thoughtful. And she's, a, she's truly a prayerful young woman. No, she's not. No, she's loud and boisterous and obnoxious and I love her. But she's not. You know why she was prayerful the week that Kathy was there? Her arm was out of joint. She was in pain all week long, so she was quiet. It's not because she was prayerful. What I'm saying is this. We didn't adopt them because of certain characteristics that they met. We adopted them because God said, I have three more children for you, go get them. Adoption is not about the adoptee. I mean, we did choose them, we wanted them, we loved them, but it wasn't because of something they did. They didn't earn the adoption, neither do we. Neither does Israel. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Just listen to this, I'll read it to you. Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. Now this was after the golden calf incident. You are a holy people? Sure weren't acting like it. No, Moses says, you are a holy people set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? Because they sing Havanakila? Because they know how to say Wachayim? Because they do with falafel what no one can? Why did God choose this people? Listen. The Lord did not set His love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which He swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God. Why are the people of Israel called the sons of adoption? Because God chose them. Not because of anything they did. And we need to get that. Because what they did to reject God was also not part of the deal. Does not factor in to God's choice. When God chooses, He is faithful. Period. The adoption of sons, it stands 
Because it comes by the grace of God and not the place of the people of Israel. And the same way with me, same with my adoption. I am not adopted because of what I've done. I am adopted because of what Jesus did. I am saved because of His grace, not because of my goodness. So it is with Israel. Understand that. Ephesians 1, verse 5, He predestined us to Huiothesia, adoption as sons, through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of His grace. Actually, it's to the praise of the glory of His grace. Secondly, Paul says, not only to whom belongs the adoption of sons, that's one gift that comes through Israel and is then transferred or translated or or shared with us, but also the glory. Don't skip over that. It is through Israel. Theirs is the glory. Not their glory, but to them belongs the glory. In the Greek, it's the doxa. Remember, in the Hebrew, it's the kabod. The heaviness of glory, the doxa, the praiseworthiness of God. Exodus chapter 16, verse 10. The glory of God is a tangible thing. Exodus 16.10, it came about as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the sons of Israel. That they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. Remember that? The cloud by day. Filled with the bright glory of God, it's called the Shekinah, the Shekinah glory of God. Exodus twenty four seventeen. To the eyes of the sons of Israel appeared the glory of the Lord like a consuming fire on the mountaintop, and that was at Mount Horeb, the holy mountain, what we call Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter forty, verse thirty four. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That mobile temple in the wilderness, filled with the glory of God. And we're told in Exodus 40-38, throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night, in the sight of all the house of Israel. Wherever you went in the camp of Israel, encamped all around the tabernacle, you would see, you could look to the center of camp, and you could see light there in the middle of the night, Beaming, glowing out of the tabernacle itself. Because the presence of the Lord, the glory of the Lord was there. Theirs was the glory. They saw the glory of the Lord. And then when Solomon built the temple and, and dedicated it on that wonderful day, we're told in 1 Kings 8.11, the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. Same cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. So intense, so thick, so heavy was God's presence. The priests skedaddled. They couldn't even stay in there and do the job. And so theirs was the glory until 586 B.C. When Nebuchadnezzar came in and Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, raising it to the ground and burned down the temple, nothing was left. Ezekiel chapter 10, the prophet saw that. Saw it happen. He describes it as the glory of God departing the temple. Starting first in the inner court and then to the threshold and then out and finally out over the eastern side of Jerusalem across the Mount of Olives until the glory of God departed the people of Israel. I can think of nothing more frightening than the idea that God would take His Spirit from me. Now He promises not to. 
He promises, gang, when He gives us His Spirit, His Spirit resides, takes up residence, and He is here. And the only reason I don't feel Him is because I'm ignoring Him. But He's present. With Israel, He gave His glory, and when they sought other gods and chased after other idols, He withdrew His glory and withdrew His presence, not permanently, but temporarily. Because you see, Ezekiel not only saw the removal of God's glory, he saw its return. Ezekiel 43, verse 1. The prophet says, He led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. That is the beautiful gate, the eastern gate of the temple. And behold, the glory of the Lord God of Israel was coming from the way of the east. And His voice was like the sound of many waters. Exactly how John describes hearing Jesus in Revelation chapter 1. His voice like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with His glory. You see, theirs was the Shekinah glory of God. They saw it and it will return in the person of Jesus Christ. Theirs was the glory. Theirs was the adoption of sons. Theirs was, and I'm going to take the rest of these all together, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service, and the promises. The covenants. Understand, all of these things are connected to the covenants. The covenants of God. There were five specifically given to Israel. If you don't know this, note this. Be aware of this. Number one was the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, Abraham. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And we later discover that that Abrahamic covenant is extended through his son Isaac, not Ishmael. In fact, in Genesis 22, God doesn't even recognize Israel, or Ishmael, sorry, doesn't recognize Ishmael. He says to Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, and go to the mountain of which I'm going to show you. Ishmael was not God's plan. It was man's plan. So Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and through this line would come blessing to all the nations, all the families of the earth. That's the Abrahamic covenant. Second covenant. The land covenant. Genesis 13, Genesis 15. Read these on your own time. He speaks of the land covenant and the offering of land all the way from the Nile River to the Euphrates, 300,000 square miles of land that is detailed in those passages. And God said to Abraham, this land is your land. And I've told you before, at the height of their glory under Solomon, Israel maintained 30,000 square miles. Not 300. 10% of all God promised. Isn't that just like us? He has promised us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, and yet I take 10%. That's good enough. That's fine. Any more than that might get a little weird. Any more than that might require me to step out in faith more than I really want to. So I'll take 10%. Thank you very much. And God goes, all right. There's a whole lot of land here for you. It's a lot of promises if you'll take them. If you'll receive them. The land covenant. The Abrahamic covenant. And then, number three, the Mosaic covenant. Deuteronomy 4 and 5, Deuteronomy 28 and 30, all the way through the book of Exodus, you read of the laws given, 613 laws that were given to Israel. In the Mosaic covenant given to, from God through Moses to the people of Israel. 
And then number four, along comes the Davidic covenant. A fourth distinct covenant. 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God says to David, you're not going to build me a house, but I'm going to build you one. And of your seed, I'm going to put on the throne in Jerusalem for all eternity. And he's talking about his son Jesus, not Solomon. That Jesus through the line of David would come. Messiah would come. The Davidic covenant. The promise of a future kingdom. And as a matter of fact, the promise of a kingdom that Israel has yet to experience. A future one. Grand and glorious beyond measure. The Davidic covenant. Finally, number five. God offered Israel the new covenant. Jeremiah 31. Just as the adoption as sons was first offered to Israel, so was the new covenant. But you Bible students know we tap into that one. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Now the Hebrew writer... I think Paul, some commentators would disagree with me, but they're just commentators. They tend to be kind of half-baked anyway. Sorry. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7. Paul, again, I, I think it was Paul. I'm pretty sure it was Paul. We'll talk about that if and when we get to Hebrews. But... He quotes from Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. Listen to what he says. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. That first covenant, wait a minute. Prior to the new covenant, there were four, not just one. But here he's referring to just one that had a flaw. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the law of Moses. The Mosaic Covenant had a flaw. What was the flaw? It had to be kept by Israel. So if that first covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant. Note this, with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. So it's very clear who the covenant begins with. Right? Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. So now we know what covenant he was talking about. Proof, it was the Mosaic covenant that was not, uh, that was not faultless. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. I like the language. I just didn't care for them. You know someone you just don't care for? Anyway. He says, for this is the covenant, verse 10, that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother saying, know the Lord for all will know me. From the least to the greatest of them. And I will be merciful to their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. Verse 13. When he said a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. But wherever, whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. And there are Christians the world over. And I was raised in this mentality that say because of that the Old Testament is obsolete. Wrong. Wrong. 
The only thing that was made obsolete by the offering of the new covenant in Messiah is the Mosaic covenant. One of five. What are you saying, Rick? (laughs) I'm saying only one is replaced. All of the others are not. Only one was conditional. The other four are unconditional, which means they are still in play. They are not revoked. They are not canceled out. All the rest stand. The Abrahamic covenant. That through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the people of the world would be blessed. We are blessed. We haven't even seen nothing yet. The land covenant. And I absolutely believe that Israel will, in the coming kingdom, maintain 300,000 square miles of promise. The Davidic covenant, that one of the line of David will sit and rule and reign on the throne in Jerusalem from the temple. Jesus the Christ. And of course the new covenant, where God will, with Israel and Judah, will draw them back to be His people and He will be their God and He will write His laws on their minds and in their hearts. It will be unlike anything the Jewish people have ever experienced. But we've got to maintain and understand this. The Abrahamic, the land, the Davidic, and the New Covenant are all unconditional promises of a faithful God to the people of Israel. All to be performed by God to Israel and for Israel regardless of anything Israel has or will do. Has done or will do. Theirs are the covenants. And four out of five of those covenants remain. It's vital. Why is it so important to understand that is more than a history lesson? Because it is God's faithfulness that is on the line. And if He violates one of those four covenants, the Mosaic covenant was an if-then covenant. The whole thing was written and spoken that way. If you will keep My laws, then you may live in the land. If you will do as I tell you, then you shall prosper. And I will be with you. And I will make your way wonderful. But they didn't. So he didn't. It was an if then. They stood on Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal calling out blessings and cursings. The covenant. Deuteronomy 28, 29 and 30. So that they could vividly understand this was a covenant that they had to keep or they would lose. Are you with me? Okay. God's faithfulness is on the line. And as we've said so many times, if God does not keep His promises, His covenants to the Jew, why should He keep the new covenant with you? If He doesn't keep it with them, then He is a capricious God. And my friends, that's Allah. Allah, the God of the Koran, is a capricious, flighty God. You never know what He's going to do. The God of truth, the only true God, is faithful. Yahweh, Jehovah, Yeshua, the faithful God. What about the giving of the law? I mean, we've got the covenants and the giving of the law here back in Romans 9. How has the giving of the law blessed you? Has it blessed you? In ways that you don't even know. In fact, our growingly secular culture doesn't even realize how blessed we are by the law of Moses. How blessed history is. It not only profoundly shaped the documents of the Constitution and the independence of our own nation, but the law brought divine morality to the planet. Before the law of Moses, you know what we had? We had things like the Hammurabi Code. Have you read the Hammurabi Code? 
Here are a couple things you might want to live under if you like the idea of Hammurabi. If a person is accused, he is to jump in the river. If he doesn't drown, he must be innocent. In that case, the accuser is put to death. That sounds like a good law. Somebody call Island County. Let's get it rolling. I like this one. Actually, we could put this into place. If a son strikes a father, his hands are hewn off. That's Hammurabi's code. It is a brutal, violent code in which almost everything... Death penalty for parking violations. I mean, it's ridiculous. Nice laws. But along, along comes the law of Moses and sets boundaries of compassion and freedom into all walks of life like no other law had ever done. The law of Moses, though it's a conditional covenant between God and His people, has blessed the planet has been a gift. The Ten Commandments have been a gift to us to live free with respect for other people and deep compassion. What what about this one? The the temple service. You may notice temple is in italics. So it's really the service. In the Greek, it's the latria. And the latria, what it implies is the service of worship. And that's why they add the temple service because the service being talked about is the service and the sacrifices of the temple. How are those a blessing? They're all a picture of the coming sacrifice of Jesus. And if you go through and read those, Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, the first five chapters, read them and look for Jesus. He is all over every single sacrifice that was offered in the temple. What about the promises? It says there's, it was also the promises. Well, nearly a third of all scripture are the promises of God. Prophecy. Promises, prophetic promises, and most of that third of all Scripture are messianic Christ promises guaranteeing His first coming and His second coming. And I'll just remind you of this. If all of the promises of His first coming were fulfilled literally in Jesus, and they were, how literal will be the promises of His second coming? Why would we think His second coming would be any less literal than His first? And that's important when we consider the prophecies of God. The promises. And then verse 5 continues, Whose are the fathers? Another gift of Israel. Theirs are the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. And get this, He is still the God of their fathers. What do you mean? I mean the fathers are still alive. The fathers have not ceased to exist. Jesus said in Matthew 22.31 regarding the resurrection of the dead, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. I am the God, not I was. And Jesus says, He's not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Do you get the implication here? When Paul says, to Israel belongs the fathers, Jesus is talking about, Paul is referencing resurrection. Not the fathers past, but the fathers present. Having awaited their redemption, they received it at the cross. The fathers were then released from Sheol and are now in the presence of the Lord, and these belong to Israel. But here's the greatest gift of all. And from whom is the Christ 
according to the flesh. Why have a heart for Israel? If we would be grateful to the people for nothing else, we cannot ignore this. This people through whom came our very salvation. If not for the people of Israel, no Messiah. Because God chose through that line to come into this world. Jesus was at Jacob's well there in Samaria. At that small town. And and He came up outside of the town and there was a woman at the well. You remember the story. The apostles went in to get some burgers and Jesus stayed out of the well. They would not have been cheeseburgers. Understand that. But they went to get burgers. Jesus is out there. And He starts talking with the woman. And the conversation that ensues is remarkable. John chapter 4. But then He says this. He says, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. You worship what you do not know. You Samaritans, he says to her. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. We are the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. Now you know that. Revelation 5, verse 5, Jesus is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Where does the name Judah... What is derived from the name Judah? Jew. That's where the word Jew in our language today it comes from Judah, from the southern tribe of Judah, from the people of Judah who came back from Babylonian captivity. And yes, it included all of the people of Israel, but that's why they're called Jews today. And Jesus is the Lion of Judah. And I'm not even going to say this as an opinion. I believe it's absolutely true. That anti, not that my opinions aren't true, but you know what I'm saying. Anti-Semitism today, or indeed any rejection of the Jewish people, is a rejection of Jesus, who is a Jew. Should we reject Israel? We reject our own Lord. And I say that carefully because there are churches who are rejecting Israel right and left in our world today. The boycott, divest, and sanction movement is underwritten by scores of denominations who would say to Israel, you're an apartheid state, you don't deserve to be in the land, you don't belong in the land, and so we're going to stop investing, and we're going to sanction any products that come out of Israel, and we're going to boycott Israel at every turn. And it's satanic. And it has hurt Israel. Why do we keep going to the land? Because there are Christians who are misrepresenting God to Israel and I will not be one of them. And we need to bring a representation of truth to Israel that God loves His people, that God still has a plan for His people. He has not rejected four out of the five covenants. He has not revoked their adoption as sons. That is yet to come. He has promised all of these things to the people of Israel. And I love Israel. Because I love Jesus, who is a Jew. And who is King of the Jews, even as the cross announced. Christ according to the flesh, the Messiah of this world, who is of the line of the Jewish fathers. Jesus said this, Matthew 25.40, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. To who, Jesus? One of my brothers. Who are his brothers? Israel. Romans 11.18, speaking of Israel, Paul writes, Do not be arrogant toward the branches. 
For if you are arrogant, it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And the very reason, in my opinion, that arrogance exists at all in the church today is very simple. There are not enough broken hearts for the Jewish people, and there are not enough Berean hearts who have studied this out and recognized the truth of the Word of God. Broken hearts and Berean hearts. But note this, he is called the Christ according to the flesh. Who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. And it is a clear declaration of the deity of Jesus Christ. There are people who try to read it another way, and I'm sorry, you just can't do it. He is God. The Christ who came through Israel. He is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Isaiah 45, verse 23. Quickly, i got a couple more things to tell you here. God says, I have sworn by Myself... The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. What word? Listen. That to me, God speaking, every knee shall bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Does that sound familiar? You see, that's what Paul quotes when he says in Philippians 2.10, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess, will swear allegiance, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul draws on that saying of Isaiah, of that declaration, that prophecy of God speaking. And Paul says that is Jesus. And Paul says in Colossians 2.9, For in Him, in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So Jesus is the Christ according to the flesh. And Paul balances it out. Who is over all God, blessed forever. Amen. Amen? Amen. And that alone causes me to deeply love Israel. I can tell you honestly, before we began the bridge, before this fellowship got rolling, I didn't know how I felt about Israel. I was uncertain. I was beginning to find an affection for the Jewish people, but I had no idea of the very things we're talking about today. Now, we're going to wade into this olive grove of Israel over the next couple of weeks, but I've got to add something to broken and Berean hearts. And that is this. We are those with branching hearts. Branching hearts. We crammed into a little shop owned by two brothers, Dove and Moshe. This was the day after Roni had opened up to us and told us the value of our coming to Israel to him personally and to Jews that he knew. So we come into this little shop. Shorashim is the name of the shop. And Moshe, one of the two brothers that owns it, he began to relate the very same thing to our group that Roni had just said the day before. Same thing. It, it was like they had rehearsed it. Maybe they did, I don't know. But he began to share about how he had seen that closing gap, that distance between Christians and Jews coming together. People of faith in the same God. It was wonderful. He was so welcoming. I I, I bought a ring there. Primarily because once I put it on, I couldn't get it off, so I just bought it. (laughs) Moshe's like, yeah, that's why we put the the rings and stuff out and have people try them on. (laughs) Have to buy them. Moshe was all about the dialogue. Talking about, you know, if Jews and Christians would respectively, respectfully come together and share, they would discover how often we are two sides of the same coin. 
that our perspectives, we may see it differently, but truly when we come together, we realize how like-minded and how like-hearted we truly are. Now, I love the name of the shop, Shorashim. Because Shorashim is the plural form of the Hebrew word Shoresh, which means roots. Roots. It's the roots shop. Shorashim. They get it from Jeremiah 17, verse 7. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is in the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its Shorashim, its roots, by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will be, it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. And so their whole concept in this little shop is not just to sell things, but it's to dialogue. And when we go there, Moshe always wants to dialogue. I love it. This is the first time we actually crammed our whole group in there and and stood around. He closed and locked the door and we're like, oh, we're in for it now. Get out your credit cards because we're not leaving. This Jewish guy's got us pegged. No. He closed the door and spent 20 minutes just talking to us about Israel. About his heart. About the Jewish people. About our relationship. And this whole idea of dialogue. And it was beautiful. Skip over to Romans 11 verse 13. Romans 11.13 I know we're a little over time this morning but this is so important we're going to get into this more in depth but I just want to read this to you this morning I am speaking to you who are Gentiles Paul writes inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles I magnify my ministry if somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, get this, if the root is holy, the branches are too. And it's critical to understand who are the root and who are the branches verse 17 but if some of the branches were broken off and you being a wild olive you wild olives were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree do not be arrogant toward the branches okay so you're the wild olives we're the wild olives we Gentiles right They are the branches that were cut off. Read on. Do not be arrogant toward the branches, that is, toward Israel. But if you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who supports the root, but the root who supports you. Wild branches, now well-fed, nurtured, and cultivated by a root system out of which branched Israel, because it's a root system that is deeply rooted in the root, which is not Israel. It is Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus is the root. Israel branches from Jesus. Branches were broken off in rebellion, in rejection. Wild olives of the Gentiles were grafted into now the branches to become part of this olive tree. Just like the mangoes grafted into the orange trees, so we're grafted into the olive tree. But the root system of that original tree, which is Israel, the root system is Jesus. Out of whom Israel blossoms. Where do you get that? Revelation 22.16 where Jesus clarifies, I am the root. 
and the descendant of David. I am the root of David and I am the descendant of David. I came before David as the root. I come after David as the son of David, Messiah. The root and the right heart when considering Israel is one that is broken. It is one that is Berean in our study of the scriptures. And it is one that is branching out. We branch from the root. So we accept, we recognize that trunk, that original olive tree. We're branching out from Israel, gang. But our roots go deeper than Israel. Our roots go through Israel right into the Messiah Himself, Jesus Christ. You see how connected we are supposed to be? And what Paul will later say, and we'll get to this, not this morning, but the branches that were broken off, guess what? They're going to get grafted back in. So that the whole tree will grow together in one magnificent glorification of God's faithfulness. Broken-hearted people. Berean people. Branching people. If we would understand this, what it should cause in us is burning hearts. Burning-hearted people. Chapter 10, verse 1, My heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Is it? Is it? Chapter 11, verse 1, I say God has not rejected His people Israel. Has He? May it never be. A people with a burning heart. Can we be that? Are we that for Israel? Are we that for Jesus? Are we that for the lost? A people with burning hearts. See, they were on the road to Emmaus, those two men. It was a dark, sad Sunday afternoon. But it was the day of Jesus' resurrection and they didn't have a clue until Jesus showed up and starts walking with them and talking with them. And then He reveals Himself to them over breaking of bread and wine over the Lord's Supper. And then He disappears. And they say to each other, Luke 24.32, were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road, while He was explaining the Scriptures to us. And if you would have a broken heart for the lost, Israel and Gentile alike, if you would have a heart that is Berean, seeking to know the truth, and a heart that is branching out from the original roots of Jesus, you should have then a burning heart for the truth. A people who love the plans, the purposes, and yes, the people of God. Let me end with this. Romans eleven twenty nine. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Just as you were once disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also, Israel, now have been disobedient that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. And that is coming for Israel. God is faithful. He has a place for His people, a place where they will be finally found in His mercy. And as Paul writes in Romans 11.26, so all Israel will be saved. How does that work? Come back next week and we will talk about that.